0: Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Come from Titus. It's going to be 2.11 through 15. Again, that passage is Titus 211 through 15, so as you make your way back to your seats, you can go ahead and start opening up. Also, I do just want to remind you guys, I know normally we preach out of the NIV, but today I'm actually choosing the ESV translation, and I just feel that it kind of grasps some of my points in the way that the ESV translators decided to kind of uh, write this passage today. So here now, the word of the Lord. from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So today what I wanna focus on in this passage is understanding that Paul here is talking about the first appearance of Christ and how that provides our salvation and how we are waiting for the second appearance of Christ and how that provides motivation for good works. So one of my favorite movies growing up was The Usual Suspects. It was made in 95, so maybe some of the youngins might not have actually watched it yet. But uh, for those that also aren't familiar with it, the way the movie works was it starts off with a man that was arrested and he's being held in an FBI office, and this FBI agent is interrogating him. And we kind of see quickly off in the beginning of the movie as this agent's talking to him that he is wrapped up in this huge assassination hit. And, he's, and the agent's trying to figure out how this crime lord, Kaiser Soze, kind of orchestrated this uh, assassination hit. And this man is kind of starting to give him details and, and you kind of feel that he's already from the beginning of the movie that he's being taken advantage of by Kaiser Soze because he seems to be a little bit unintelligent. He's actually has a physical handicap um, to him. And you kind of see that. But right after they kind of present this to you, they rewind and flash back to the beginning of where this interactions with Kaiser Soze and this man kind of start to play. And the rest of the movie kind of plays out how, that, how those actual events lead up to him being arrest, arrested. And that's kind of what we see here. We see what's going to happen, the conclusion of the movie that this man was arrested, but we don't really fully know exactly all the events. There's a little suspension of how those events are going to, out, to fold out. And that's what Paul is talking about in this passage. But again, before we also dive into this passage, this is one of Paul's letters, it's an epistles, and we need to understand a little bit about the letter, I think, before we can unpack this passage. So like I said, this comes from a letter to Paul, but we, you know, as a letter you might think of who was this written to, when was it written, written, and kind of why was it written. But you think that it might be written to Titus because it's titled Titus, like many of his other epistles, but the tradition back then really for letters was not the way that we have it with an email where you kind of just type in the person that you want it to specifically go to, or with snail mail when you actually address the letter and you send it in the USPS that it gets to that person and that person opens it up and only they read that, that letter or that email. Back then it was more common for these letters to be read out in public during, uh, at a church or something like that so that everybody in the area, everybody in the city, the people, the group of people that you're really addressing, whether it's Christians or, or so, would hear that letter being read and they would read it entirely through, from start to be- to end, that they would hear this whole letter all the way through. And that's kind of what Titus is about. It's not really directed to just one person, to Titus. It's directed to the entire church. And Titus at this time uh, was in Crete, so in, in this little island of Greece, if you guys aren't familiar with Crete. And Titus was kind of moving around, and he was starting up these churches. Now, we don't have a lot of information of when exactly this kind of falls out in Paul's ministry because a lot of that information we get is from Acts and Acts kind of ends with Paul being arrested in Rome, and therefore we're not really sure where that comes from. But some scholars do believe that it it happened after possibly Paul being released from imprisonment in Rome or uh, during that time frame. But what is important is that we do know that from the way the letter is written, that these churches are, are understood as being pretty young, being established for the first time. And the way that we kind of know that is because from Paul's other letters, this is also uh, what we term as a pastoral epistle. So there's about there's three of them, first and second Timothy, and then Titus, and we kind of see those uh, makings and instructions for the churches why we we call them pastoral epistles, but um, Paul doesn't address in this letter the concept of deacons, and it's perceived that through the history that we have that churches were established and elders were um, implemented into the church for the church leadership, the plurality of elders like we have here in our church. And then after the church was well established, then the concept of deacons coming into the church leadership was established. And since the fact that Paul leaves out the the instruction of deacons, it is believed that these churches were in the beginning phases, the young uh, establishment. And Paul here is providing those young churches a solid foundation on how to build those churches. Because if you think about it, if you look at the other letters that Paul has written to other churches at this time, because it is perceived that this is later part of Paul's ministry, he's already had to correct other churches, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians. All those letters are to correct those churches. So he wants to set up, and even the other pastoral epistles with First and Second Timothy, he's already trying to correct those churches in Ephesus and talk about false teachers. Now what he's trying to do here is prevent that from even ever happening. He's trying to give them such a solid foundation that they don't ever kind of go off that path and need a letter or instruction from Paul to bring them back to where they are. So that's where we kind of see that. And we also see that in Titus 1.1 that Paul is addressing this also, as he says, to increase the faith of God's people. He's trying to increase that faith, build that foundation so that um, as Paul leaves them, that they won't kind of lead astray. So what does that mean? What does that impact in the, the faith of in, being in Christ? And what Paul is addressing here in that letter is that that faith, that strong foundation, is illustrated by a life that is filled with good works. Those good works are an outward sign that you have faith in Christ. And Paul, throughout this letter, places a strong emphasis on good works. But I want to be clear here that Paul never changes his theology about salvation. He never reverts back and says, these good works are important because that's how you earn your salvation. He always maintains his theology that you are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we see this overall focus of Paul in Titus on good works in uh, Titus 1.16 that you see on the screen that talks about unfit for good works when he's addressing the false teachers. He's calling them that they are unfit for good works because they don't have faith in, in Jesus Christ. In 2.14, in our passage, you heard zealous for good works. In 3.1, we see be ready for every good work. And in 3.8, we have be careful to devote themselves to good works. 3.14, learn to devote themselves to good works. So already we see right here there's only three chapters in Titus and in every single chapter Paul has already addressed good works. You can already see that there's an emphasis throughout his entire letter because like I talked about it's supposed to be read from start to finish that he is addressing the importance of good works. Now, and this is, like I said, trying to show the foundation of having faith in Christ. And if you think about it, it's kind of like what I see of how my wife loves me. And I know that she loves me because not only does she tell me that she loves me, that she has, uh, she's committed to our marriage, but as Brett was talking about, I've been in classes. I've been in DC, and those classes are long. They're about 8 to 5 p.m., and with traffic, I'm not getting home until about 7 p.m. at the earliest. And what she's been doing is she's been helping me out, and she's been cooking dinner for us. So when I come home, I have a great meal to eat that's delicious and nourishing, and I can continue to educate myself. She's also been folding the laundry. Yesterday, she spent, I don't know how many how long, because we both hate folding laundry, but she took the time and folded all the laundry for the week and uh, put it away for us. And then on top of that, because, like I said, I've been busy, so she might have even though she's not a night owl, stayed up past midnight to make sure that she could hear me run through this and tweak those final little tweaks of my sermon because those acts, those good works, shows me that she loves me. And that's kind of what Paul is getting at here throughout his letter, that he's trying to emphasize the importance works. But like I said, I do want to be clear here that in in Titus 3, 4 through 5, he still says that we are justified by faith. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So Paul is making sure that we don't forget the theology, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then he moves into the passage. So leading up into this in 2, 1 through uh, 10, he provides instructions on how the church is kind of be, uh, set up and how, uh, in verse 10, he says, by showing all good faith so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God. He's talking about that. And then in our passage, he has this four. It starts with that four that's highlighted there. And that four is, the, kind of, is a serving as a connection, a conjunction t- from those previous verses, from 2, 1 through 10, into this passage. So he just kind of laid out some good works, and now he's getting into the, to the reasoning of why we can have this faith. And that faith is, should be impacted by understanding the first appearance of Christ. So Paul moves into focusing on the importance of Jesus Christ and the redemptive history of Christ's first appearance in order to illustrate the proper faith that we should have. And in verse 11, we see that this grace of God provides training and salvation for us and that it's dependent on the grace of God. So, But at the same time, while we have this training in salvation in verse 11 that is dependent on the grace of God, the grace of God comes through the appearance. And that word appearance is epiphany. That's where we get the word epiphany from. It's It should be a shocking, encouraging appearance of the first appearance of Christ for us that Paul is talking about. And also, Paul is not talking about you might want to think about maybe the appearance of Christ, you know, the Holy Spirit being with us, being united. But Paul, through the grammar, you can kind of see he's talking about the historical event. He's not talking about this, this spiritual realm that we enter into or, or something that somebody else might want to try to distract you from of, of how the Spirit might work. He's talking about the actual historical time frame that Jesus Christ walked this earth that Jesus Christ actually taught the parables that we hear about in the scripture. He actually talked to the woman at the well about who she was. He actually you know, carried his cross up to the mountain. He actually was nailed to the cross. And he actually was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And then three days later, he rose and he is now seated at the right hand of our Father. That is what Paul is talking about. And that results in the grace of God. And from the grace of God, with that appearance, that first time that Jesus Christ has come to this earth, allows us to have salvation for all people, all of us. And like I said, he's addressing the churches of Crete. So if you think about that, he's getting outside of Jerusalem, the Israelites that we see. It's going all the way to all people to Greece. And it's continuing on. So that's what we see here with that. And then he also, this grace of God that has appeared from Jesus Christ's first appearance, it's training us. And it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. And those two aspects are kind of, if you think about it, it's, Paul's not just saying, okay, these two things you gotta make sure you, you don't do. What he's, he's relating to is, you gotta make sure that you watch yourself and renounce the negative aspects in how to relate in a vertical aspect to God in the ungodliness, and a horizontal aspect with the worldly desires. So he's talking about making sure that you interact in those two ways. That's, that's how your faith should be. That you make sure that you <clears throat> you are renouncing those negative aspects. And then he gives us three things to live by, and he makes sure that he defines those as in oneself, others, and God. And he does so by saying to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And those things, if you think about it too, if you make sure that you orient yourself first and you can kind of have that interaction, that intersection between the horizontal and the vertical aspects, right? That's, that's yourself. And then you can kind of go outside to others in the horizontal aspect and then also to God in the vertical realm. So Paul, what he's kind of doing right here is saying like he's showing us what we've talked about before at Bay Ridge is that you can't just remove negative aspects from your life because they're just going to come back in. You have to replace them with positive things. So Paul is giving us the negative things to renounce, and then he's providing us the positive means in order to kind of replace that and fill that void so they don't creep back in. He's providing us that foundation in that faith so that the young church can mature in a manner that they still stay faithful to who Jesus Christ is and who our Father is. But that's also when Paul moves into the lives, living in the present age. So he just talked about that we are supposed to do these things and live, but he brings up in this present age. And this kind of gets at what we kind of saw, what we see today in this world. I don't want to say what we saw because we're going to continue to see these things. But what Paul is saying is in that present age, that age, that term is is eon. And if you think about it, eon is kind of a time, an era, a period of time and Paul's not saying like in the present age of, of when he was living in you know 40 AD or so, and now it's completely different because we're in the 2000s and we have the millennial generation and all those things, that they're completely separated. What he's saying is that eon, that era, is in this time frame between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. And we call that the, the present, the already but not yet for that present age. And what that means is that already we have the appearance of Christ. We already have that Jesus Christ came here and he died for us. He forgave our sins and that he is providing us salvation. But it's not yet complete. It's not yet do we have the new heavens and the new earth. We still don't have the full completion of God's redemptive plan. And that's where we're kind of living at right now. So we already have these blessings from God and this salvation, but it's not fully complete. And that's why we can see these events that are occurring because it's, It's not completed that. We can see that what happened a few days ago here in Annapolis can actually occur. And Paul moves into, now that we're kind of between these two, what I was talking about, the first appearance and the second appearance, he moves into the second appearance of Jesus Christ. And he's doing so because he wants you to say, like I talked about, it's not yet the new heavens the new earth. He wants you to see the hope and the provision that is going to come when the second appearing of Jesus Christ occurs. And that should motivate us, that should encourage us to love God in such a way that we want to work for him, that we want to carry out these good works. And this is what he says in verse 12, with the waiting for that connects to the the living. And that that waiting for is almost, when you read that, it can almost be overlooked, because you just think about maybe waiting for, of waiting for a bus, or a taxi, or somewhere that you have to get to. But right now, I'm sure there's some of you that can relate to this, of the struggles of teaching a toddler on how to wait for things. And Lauren and I right now are, are trying to teach Everly how to wait for something and not immediately get that desire that you want. And Lauren's family is big into Disney princesses. I think I got quizzed the first time I went down to Georgia on who my favorite princess was and all their names. What I did not know any of them, except for, I think, Ariel, what is Everly's favorite, I believe. It's hard to tell right now. but. So she has seen those, she's, we've started to introduce those movies. And we know that it's not good to just let her watch endless Disney movie after Disney movie after Disney movie. But she wants to. She wants to watch his movies. And we constantly get asked, can I watch Snow White? Can I watch Little Mermaid? And we have to tell her, no, you have to wait. And we try to kind of hold out to Friday night, you know, Friday movie night to allow her to watch these movies. But she's still learning that. She's trying to like, figure out how, how to wait for those things. And when you kind of say that, she might get a little down. But at the same time, you can see that she's kind of eager to wait for that movie to be able to be played. And when it finally does come, when we finally can present to her that movie on Friday night, oh my gosh, the joy that she has on her face, just staring up at the TV, dancing around with the princesses, trying to sing along, it's it's amazing. And that, that wait for, that is what Paul is trying to kind of express with that terminology, is that we are waiting for that moment when we have this, the new heavens, the new earth coming to us, and the joy that's gonna be responding. Another way to put it is think about when you were little and the excitement that you had on Christmas Eve waiting for Christmas morning. It was almost, I would say, more exciting for me, that joy that was filled up, than the actual moment. And that's kind of what he's talking about here, that anticipation of that great event that is coming. And Paul says also that what are we waiting for? That's another thing that we need to ask for. So he goes, what are we waiting for? And it says, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, it can kind of almost appear that that waiting for is the blessed hope, and that blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and, and Savior Jesus Christ. But I want to point out, this is, it's a difficult section with the grammar how to kind of see this, but it's really actually two things. Our blessed hope is one, and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the second. And that all comes from the appearing. That appearing, again, is the same word that I talked about in verse 11, that God has appeared for epiphany. So we have these two things, and now you have to ask yourself, what is our blessed hope? Because that's That's a pretty vague term, I would say, as you kind of read that. But that blessed hope is kind of relating, like I said, this was a letter that was read entirely through, back to verse one with what is provided from the first appearance. And that is salvation. So the blessed hope of having salvation. And we see that also in Titus 1-2, when he talks about in hope of eternal life, And also in 3.7 when he talks about heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we kind of see that this is a common practice that Paul has kind of been using in the book of Titus and that this blessed hope is the salvation. But like I said, the appearance is also the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is what provides what Paul moves into in what Jesus is able to accomplish. And that statement too is showing the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is part of the Trinity. It's not the appearing of our God, our great God, and our savior Jesus Christ. I wanna just kinda make sure that you guys aren't seeing that. It's that Jesus Christ is our God and savior. And because of that, because of that deity, he is able, that results in what Paul moves on to talk about, that that results in the believers being redeemed. And we're redeemed from lawlessness and we are purified. And once we are redeemed, so we see that appearing, that hope and that knowledge that we have that salvation and the deity of Jesus Christ that results into us being redeemed in lawlessness and and being purified And then what does that result in after we are, are cleansed? It's the zealousness for good works. All this, the first and the second appearance that Paul talks about, you know, these almost these two bookends in redemptive history that he's trying to highlight for us, all should allow that God purifies us, and he cleanses us from all lawlessness. He forgives our sins. We are provided salvation. And that should result in a zealousness for good works. And and again, you see now that what Paul is not saying is that salvation comes from doing good works. He's saying that your salvation provides the motivation, the faith that results in wanting to do good works. And he's kind of relating into that concept in Matthew 12, 35, that the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasures brings forth evil. Or the ability, basically, to determine whether or not a tree is a good tree on how it bears its fruit. So the other thing, too, that you also see here is that that zealous works, that motivation, that faith is also for a people of his own possession. And here, Paul's kind of shifting. That salvation was for all people, but he is saying here now that that faith is for the believers. He's making the distinction between those two. And that you also can kind of determine that by if you look at Exodus 19 through five, Deuteronomy seven, six, and Deuteronomy fourteen two. That terminology that, that Paul writes, a people for his own possession, is the same terminology that are in those passages that results in God's treasured possession when he's talking about the Israelites. And he's talking about the Israelites being his chosen people, the believers, the people of God. So we see that. Like, he's, he's making sure that he understands that these things result in you being redeemed. What brings you into the people of God? Bel- brings you in and you're now a believer of Jesus Christ? And what should that impact of that increase faith And that increased faith is what Paul finishes off this passage with in verse 15. He discusses how this life and faith and good works should result in interacting with others. He moves into giving us direction commands in this. And this passage, too, we have to ask ourselves as we move into it, that the first words off of this are these things. Declare these things. What are these things? And as I mentioned, the emphasis of this book have been good works. And Paul is kind of instructing us to declare good works, to show these good works. And there's um, debate between scholars whether these things, the good works, are referring back to the entire rest of the letter, Titus 1, 1 through now, or more so of Titus 2, 1 through 10. And I. I believe that he's referring more to 2, one through 10 because it's actually describing how members of the church are supposed to live, how the older women and the older men are kind of supposed to instruct and encourage the younger men in the church on how to live and carry out these good works. But regardless of how you really interpret it, it's still pretty much implying the same thing, that Paul is saying, declare these things, the good works, showing your faith in Jesus Christ. And he does so by exhorting and rebuking. And you can do so because you have all authority of Christ with you, because you're in faith with Christ. You are now a treasured possession of of God. And then after kind of Paul lets us know that we're supposed to go forth, you know, we're supposed to be on mission. He's sending us out, declare these things. And he's saying, you know, and exhort and rebuke with all the power of Jesus Christ, because now we have, we're now believers. We're now have the Holy Spirit in us. He moves into this, what I think is actually a very uh, confusing command: let no one disregard you. And this imperative, this command, is confusing to me because if you really think about this, let no one disregard you. That disregard, think about it: like look down on you, hate you, not agree with you. How can I sit there when a coworker is telling me that they don't believe in Christ and that it's just hocus pocus magic and disregard me for who I am? How can I twist his arm to do so? But that's what Paul is telling us right here. Let no one disregard you. So it's it can appear pretty convoluted, confusing. But if you look back in Titus 2, 7 through 8, Paul mentions that by performing these good works and by showing that you have faith in Christ, that no one will have the ability to look down on you because they know that you have faith in Christ. And I think that's what Paul is getting at right there. Is that he's saying, like, you can't necessarily control what others are gonna say about you, but you can control whether they can call you a hypocrite or not. Whether or not that you can say, I truly believe in Jesus Christ because I truly see that Christ is an actual person that lived here on earth and died for our sins. He was crucified on, on the cross and he was buried. And then three days later, he defeated death and he was raised, resurrected, and now sits at the right hand of our Father. That, I think, is what Paul is getting at here. And that is what he's trying to show is that credence, sh- that, that good works shows that credence for our underlying faith. And that will be a strong foundation as you proceed in a walk with Christ, as we proceed in the foundation of our church, and as we proceed further until we finally see the second coming of Christ. So how do we apply this? I know that this was pretty, pretty strong and heavy-hitting But how do we apply these two images that Paul talks about, these two appearances of Christ in our lives? How are we doing good works? And we might be sitting here thinking, I do good things. I mow my neighbor's yard when he needs it. I help out at our church work parties. Heck, I'm here today right now listening to this sermon. But why do you do these things? That's kind of what Paul's getting at, is why do you do these things? Are you doing them because you're just told to do them and you just know that it's the right thing to do? Or are you doing them because you want to run? You want to run the race. You want to fight the good fight. You want to push forward the kingdom of God. Let me put it another way. So we're here in Maryland, right? Right? We all love lacrosse, and recently the NCAA tournament just finished, right? And Yale came out the victors. They won the national championship. So think about if you're, you know, talking about the usual suspects, that we rewind. You know the knowledge and the conclusion that Yale is going to win the national championship. And we rewind back to March in the beginning of the season and you're on the Yale team, and you know that your team is going to win the championship. And as a member of that team, how are you gonna gonna work for that team? Are you willing to put the sweat and tears on the field during the regular season games to get the record where they need to to enter the tournament? Are you willing to put the time into the practices? Or, are you more willing to blow off those practices and maybe sit on the couch and, you know, binge the next greatest show that Netflix has just put out? Are you willing to put the time in the gym, eat right, or are you just going to go to uh, Chick-fil-A or something like that and and eat more fast food and not really get the nourishment that you really need to get? Are you? going to take the time to study the playbook, so you know what plays are being called on the field? Or are you going to just put it to the side and just hope that somehow, through watching the other people, hearing what they discuss, that you pick up the plays? Are you going to just be willing to sit there during these games, too, and just be on the sideline and watch the team win those games, progressing through the season, and ultimately winning the championship, where are you? When they finally win the championship, are you going to be on the field where everybody comes and swarms you and celebrates? Or are you going to be on the sideline running out to greet our Father? Now, I can't think of any better way than to think of, as we think about the first appearance of Christ, than coming to the Lord's table, where it represents this first appearance of Jesus Christ, where it represents Christ dying on the cross for us and being raised from the dead. Now, I do want to let you know that Here at Bay Ridge, you do not have to be a member of our church to participate in communion. But like Paul concluded in that passage, you do need to be a people of God. You do need to be a believer. And you do need to actually see that Jesus Christ came and enacted these acts for us. And for those that are questioning this or wondering more about this, I want more teammates, so please see our elders. They will be more than happy to start discussing some of these things. Please come up to me, see me after the service, see me any of the time when I'm working here. I love coffee too, so I'd be more than happy to sit down, have a cup of joe with you and discuss these things. Because all of us here, we want more teammates. We want to have more people on the field. And unlike the NCAA lacrosse rules, we don't have a roster cap and we want to see that continue to grow. So with that said, for I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks to it, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you get the elements, please hold on to them and we'll take them as together. But let us pray also for the communion. Lord, you are a great God and Savior who has already come and poured your grace out to all of us. I pray that as we come to the table, we do so in a remembrance of you. We do so remembering that Jesus Christ actually walked this earth and actually died on the cross for our sins. It was our sins that put him there, but it was your grace and mercy that has raised him for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify us. Help us see this through this sacrament today, that the Lord, and help us repent for our sins and mistakes. In Jesus Christ, amen. God, as we take the bread today, help us see that we are broken and fallen. We are sinners and we need to be restored through the body of Jesus Christ. God highlight the areas we fall short in and need to repent. Help us see the past that the sacrifice Jesus made when he came to this world. Remind us that we are in, that we are your people. And we have been restored through Jesus Christ. Take and eat God, thank you for not just providing just a redemption for us through Christ's body, but instead you have provided us the new covenant that we live in now. We now have your grace and Holy Spirit with us wherever we go. You've washed away our sins with your blood and have allowed us to enter into fellowship with you, God. We are so grateful for this, and we ask that instead of us pulling away from you in the future, that instead we continue to draw closer to you. Take and drink. Lord, as we depart here today, help this sacrament be a continued remembrance of who you are to us. Help us remember that we have been united to you as your people, and as your people Fill us up with a zealous, a passion, a desire that we cannot turn off for you, God. Help us go forth seeing your sacrifice on the cross and be filled with such a faith we carry out amazing good works for you, God. Help us when we struggle in the future that we look to you and return to Jesus Christ. Help us run the race with perseverance, Lord. In Jesus Christ, amen. Please stand with me for the benediction. (laughs) May our God who called Abraham when he was but one and blessed him and made him many show that you are incapable riches of his grace that you might know you are his workmanship. To do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Go in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.